Welcome to Aim Higher, a show designed to help us realize the leadership potential inside of all of us. I'm Skip Pritchard, CEO, author, blogger, student of success, and your host. Annika Sorenstam is perhaps the greatest female golfer of all time. Before retiring, do you know how many international tournaments she won as a pro? 90. Her many awards include 10 major championships, 8 Player of the Year awards, and 89 worldwide wins. In 2013, the PGA of America named her the First Lady of Golf. She's the only female golfer to shoot a 59 in competition. Though Annika stepped away from competitive golf in 2008, she remains busy with commercial and philanthropic activities and very busy with her family. Let's go directly to my interview with Annika. I'm here today with Annika Sorenstam. Annika needs no introduction. You're the greatest <laughs> female golfer uh, ever, and you've just done a presentation. I'd love to have you just share that story. Your dad really motivated you, something mm -hmm. I hadn't heard before. Uh, what did he say to you that was one of the big motivating moments of your life? I was about 14 or 15 years old, and, uh, you know, first of all, my dad is, you know, kind of a reserved, very supportive, loving, but low-key dad, you know, never pushy, but gave me the resources that he thought I needed to do what I wanted to do, and and that was golf. And one day I'm out uh, on the driving range hitting balls, and it started to rain, and didn't really feel like being out there, so I called him, and I said, hey, Dad, can you pick me up? He said, sure, I'll be there. Uh, he picked me up, put the clubs in the, in the trunk, and we drove away, and when you drive away, you kind of go past the driving range, and, and my dad... Um, you know, he looked over at me because we saw some kids hit balls on the range, still in the rain. And he said, you know, Annika, I just want you to know this. There's no shortcut to success. And I knew then that he was so right. And, you know, I was disappointed in myself that I wanted to go home because a few raindrops. And I realized, you know, if you're going to achieve something in your life, you have to you have to work hard uh, through tougher times, through rainy days. And uh, I always tell people that, you know, next day is going to be sunny. And if you want to achieve your goals. You got to keep on working through thick and thin. So that was a lesson that my dad taught me early on. And I think it applies not just to golf, but to just things in general. And I always have that in the back of my mind as kind of my guiding light. Speaking of, you know, young life and, and kind mm -hmm. of influence, you're so comfortable now in front of the camera on stage. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I saw you at a, another event and you're mm -hmm. just, you're very comfortable speaking. And I heard a rumor or I heard someone tell me that when you were younger, mm -hmm. you would miss a shot just so you didn't have to speak at the mm -hmm. end. Is that true? <laughs> that it, yeah, it's very much true. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I would say from nature, I'm, I'm a shy Shy little girl from Sweden, and um, you know, I was even afraid to raise my hand in, in the classroom to answer a question, thinking if I was wrong, then all the kids would laugh at me. So I'd rather be quiet. And the same thing was on the golf course. Uh, we all know that if you win a golf tournament, you have to uh, say a few words. And uh, you know, the thought of standing in front of a crowd of people just scared me. So I said, "Well, maybe I should just uh, finish second because you still get a prize, but you don't have to say anything." So. Yes, I did some, uh, I have some intentional three putts, uh, chip and a putt, just some mistakes coming down the end just to make sure that I wouldn't have to give the winning speech. But, you know, people always ask me, well, how, so how did you learn or how did you get, um, how did you solve that problem? And I said, well, what happened is my parents called, you know, one of the tournament directors from, for an upcoming event because they saw something. There was like a, there was a pattern there and they would always ask me, you know, sitting in the car going home, you know, how did it feel? And. You know, and I always felt a little guilty inside because I knew that I could, I could do better. I knew I could win. I was just 
there was something else that was holding me back. And so when they called the tournament director, they had a little plot going. Uh, so the next tournament I played in, they asked the runner-up and the third place finishes to say something also. And you can imagine, you know, me stand, standing up there feeling very comfortable and all of a sudden uh, getting asked to, uh, to say a few words. And, uh, you know, the reaction at the time was, you know, I was terrified and my heart was kind of like a cartoon character, you know, it just yeah. felt like it was just jumping out of my, out of my chest. But uh, somehow I managed to say something and then I realized that, you know what, this is really not that bad. And, you know, if you're going to achieve your dreams, you got to just... You got to face all the different fears that you had, and so I had to overcome that. And and um, then, like I said, it, it was worth all the effort, all the time that I spent uh, just to you know to say a few words. Well, you seem fearless. I mean, <laughs> 2003, you took mm -hmm. on the men, and I understand you're doing that again. I am doing that again. Yes, uh, in a little different setting. This is uh, this summer at the American Century uh, Championship, and it's a, it's a celebrity golf. Uh, championship on Lake Tahoe. We spend, it's our second home in Lake Tahoe. We always go to the tournament. So I've been a spectator there a few years. One year I played in the uh, kind of in a pro-am setting with some of the celebrities and they approached me and said, would you like to play? And so, yeah, that is uh, a big challenge for me nowadays. Yes, I will be playing from the men's tees uh, against all these other celebrities, you know, actors, uh, athletes, you name it. So I look forward to it. Well, I, I just want to ask one, one other mm -hmm. question, which is the importance of giving back. Mm -hmm. You really give back. I saw you doing an event for the Children's Hospital here a few weeks ago, your foundation work. Mm -hmm. Talk about the importance of giving back after you've, you've been to the mountaintop, you've hit all the success, you have all these businesses going now, mm -hmm. and yet giving back is so important to you. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it is important to me. I never felt like that's something I had to do. On the contrary, I think it's just something I wanted to do because without golf, I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, I know it's just a sport, but this sport, uh, I owe a lot to the sport. And, and there, really, there's no better than, than golf. Um, I try to inspire young, young girls to pick up the game. And if they play, let's stay in the game. It has so much to offer. I think it teaches you so much about life. So really trying to just inspire them by sharing stories. I mean, you know, coming from Sweden, you think of soccer. Maybe you think of hockey, but you really don't think of golf. And here I am and, you know, got a scholarship at University of Arizona and really pursuing my dream. And, and like I said, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for golf. So if I can inspire a young girl to do the same and, and really be able to change your life towards the better, I mean, that's, uh, it doesn't get much better than that. It doesn't get better. And you mm -hmm. definitely stay with it. Whatever you do, you stay <laughs> with it. So we're, we're watching all of your different uh, business and philanthropic interests with a keen eye to see where, where you're headed next. So thank you so much well, for Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks. I'm now joined in the studio with two longtime panel members, Tammy Spade, who's an expert on people, purpose, and place. That's correct. And Drew Bordis, who is an expert all things operations. Welcome, Thank you. Drew. I know. I need to make mine alliterative. You, you do. Yeah. There needs I'll to work be something. On that. I'll help you with that. No, no. Thank you. Well, Annika starts out with that powerful story. You know, she starts off, she's at the driving range. It's raining. She calls her dad for a ride home, and he came. But And he's kind of quiet, she says, but he sees that others are still at it, and he made a quiet comment that stayed with her all her life. He said, Annika, there are no shortcuts to success. Wow. Those are powerful words, especially, I think, at an impressionable age, when you're 14 or 15. Words, especially from your quieter parent. We always have one parent who's a little quieter, I think. And they make a big difference. So six words for her. 
We can go to these motivational speeches. They can go on for hours. We can go to a seminar. We can go for days. We can learn to firewalk. We can do all these crazy things. But here, six words can actually have more of an impact than a week of motivational seminars. It drove her to keep working. And so I want to start there actually in a different place. So we often don't realize those moments that a few words can have a real impact on people positively or negatively. Sometimes we think about the negative more than the positive. As leaders, I'd love to talk about this with the panel. How do we orchestrate these moments to create more positive than negative experiences? And hopefully those six words that we utter aren't words that cause absolute chaos. We've all done that too. It's funny, I, as, as I, you know, listened to the interview, one of the things I thought was, I wonder if the dad even remembers that, you know, like, cause sometimes, and you know, this is parents, just your kids will say something to you. Oh, do you remember that time? Or do you remember that thing? And you're like, nope, I have no memory of that. I'm amazed it was that impactful to you. So I think that that's part of the challenge, you know, taking it back to being a leader is, is sometimes simple messages like that, that you just say, you don't realize what an impact they're having, good, good or bad. I agree with that. And I think often teachers, parents, other important figures in our lives, particularly in those formative years, say things or even model things that we don't necessarily know what the power of that is going to be. I think one of the things that I've seen a shift in just in the professional organization is more of a focus on strengths rather than weaknesses. You know, kind of the traditional view of development was focus on your weaknesses and make those better. And there are times when you need to do that because it's an essential skill for your role. But I think it's much more valuable to maximize strengths. And when you can talk to someone and build into them encouragement about what they're uniquely good at and what they're gifted at. We think about those times in our lives. I remember, you know, a teacher who gave me feedback like that, and it lasted all, it's continued to last all the way through my life. I felt like that was an area of strength, but having someone in that position talk about it gave me the confidence that I needed to continue to build on it. I think it's so easy for us to really hone in on words that have really made a difference in our lives. And they can be positive or they can be negative words that we end up using them positively. Like sometimes somebody can be critical, but you can take that and just be like, I'm going to prove them wrong or I'm going to do differently. You can use it as the Michael Jordan approach. In other the words. Michael Jordan yeah. approach, right? You can use it as fuel. It's also interesting, Drew, about not knowing as a parent, mm -hmm. as a leader, what you said. Isn't it interesting? I was just together with a lot of family. Isn't it interesting when you compare the words and the same conversation may be different? Oh, you know, yeah. I'm going back through memories of things and I'm saying, I remember this. And I said, before I tell you this, I'm going to tell you, this is my memory. Don't mess it up for me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me what really happened. <laughs> but everybody will have their own different kind of opinion or maybe the same, but there's a slight nuance or there's a different angle to it because they were literally at a different angle, saw something a little bit differently. Of course, having started a legal career clerking for a trial court judge, I saw that memory actually is very different. Like you're on the stand, you're telling the truth allegedly, and witnesses will have radically different views of the same accident. And it is true. I think that we don't always realize these words and the impact they have. So sometimes it's good, I think, to stop with people and say, talk to me a little bit about that. What did that mean? And, and sometimes if it's negative, you can unpack it and say, let me explain to you what I really meant. Or, you know, I was just having a really bad day and it actually had nothing to do with you. Let me explain. And, and I think that that's important. 
to uh, talk about. I think it's also a blessing when somebody tells you that your words had an impact, either mm-hmm. positive or negative, because they can have an impact and you, you may never know. They may never mention it to you. You'll never bring it up. It is fantastic when you find out, oh, wow, that really resonated with you. I had no idea or, or I really hoped it did, you know, because as a leader, then you can be a little bit more aware of, I said this, this happened that maybe I didn't even mean to happen. And repeating, I think sometimes your core messages are important. That's one thing I learned early on was don't give up and say it once. I think, well, I said that already. Mm, Now, do you say it? Do you come back to it? So it's really great when something resonates with her, like there are no shortcuts to success. And I want to move to something else. You can call it discipline or determination or drive, different words with different meanings. But it's that sheer willingness to work that she brought to the game. I mean, just willingness to just go at it. I mean, you have to have a passion for it. You have to have an interest in it. You have to really want it. But as leaders, do you hire for those kind of qualities or do you develop them or both? Such an interesting question. You know, there's a quote that says something like, we often hire for skills and end up firing for attitude, (laughs) maybe broadening that to more interpersonal kinds of things. But I think when you're talking about technical skills, those can be taught. When you're talking about resilience, persistence, you can definitely enhance those. But motivation is intrinsic. It's internal. And it's difficult to motivate an individual who isn't already somewhat self-motivated. It's important to hire for those skills and to do behavioral kinds of things, you know, questions that will uncover that so that you're able to get people in the team who have that self-motivation, different gifts, different strengths, but that discipline and self-motivation is absolutely critical. I remember working for someone who said to me once, because he's such a hardworking person, and he said, I knew I wasn't going to be the smartest in my class, but I set out to be the hardest working. And that made an impression on me, and I could see it in him. It had carried him through his career. Powerful, powerful. And, and knowing himself. Mm-hmm. It's very, very important. So hiring for those qualities or developing them. Drew, where are you on that spectrum? Um, I, th- I think they're better to develop. I think it's a hard thing to hire for, right? I mean, who, who's going to say they're not motivated, right, in an interview? Or it's, a, it's a tough thing to figure out. But I do think in the job, you can take moments when times are tough. Uh, and I don't, mean, I don't mean broadly. I mean in the project you're working on and maybe an interaction didn't go the way you wanted it to. And, and you know, we see this a lot in customer support system implementations, project management, they don't go flawless. There are bad times. There are times where a customer is angry at you and it's not your fault or maybe it is your fault, And but that's the job, right? And that's the job you're in. So being able to take a time and say, look, I know that wasn't fun. It's probably not the last time it's going to happen too. So if you really didn't like it, maybe this isn't, is this th- this isn't the role mm-hmm. you should be in. Mm-hmm. You got to find a way to be okay with it. It's so true. And yet I want to push back on you, Mr. Bordas, because fire in the belly is something that I think you can select and find out and cultivate in different situations. And I know of some people, I don't know who I'm referring to, (laughs) who literally made their career based on that ambition and fire in the belly. I think you can sense it. I think you're better at sensing it than other people. So, Oh, that was good. Wrapped in a bow. <laughs> there, there are ways to uncover it, though. I think you can ask good questions like, 
Tell me about a time when you were working on a project. It was really hard. It was a slog. Some of the people on the project quit. What did you do? How did you handle it? Or tell me about a time when, you know, you had a, you just didn't mix with a coworker. It just, there, there was just conflict and you, you know, every time you had to interact with them, there was an issue. Tell me about that and really push through how they deal with those things. And that illuminates because people don't know what the right answer always is. Mm-hmm. They, they try to give you the acceptable answer. Oh, I get along with everyone. Well, no, that's not really true. None of us get along with everyone. Tell me more. Give, give me a specific example. And when they do that, you get to see, are they able to push through? You know, Annika talks about working through the rainy days. And I may be paraphrasing some of her language, but how do they work through the, the rainy days? Or and that's the job, right? Yeah. If you want to be a pro golfer, they don't just show up and win. Right. It's all the work that goes on behind it when you don't feel like it. And that's great in almost every role. Do you totally. show up and, and do the work? Right. I also think, though, in interviewing, going back to the midpoint of that is we always think about interviewing as an external person we don't know coming into a company that we do know. And yet many times I'm referencing mm-hmm. you early on in your career. It's not that it's you're in the job, you're in the company but you're not in the job. And you can sense that fire in the belly more if you're already in. Definitely. Oh, definitely. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's why I was better at only because if you're there, you can see it. And I think that's really the reason. So third, I want to get into this area because I've shared this all over the world in talking about Annika Sorenstam because the single thing that affected me significantly in listening to this interview and conducting the interview years ago was what kept her back from winning? It was fear. And specifically, it was fear of public speaking. I mean, who would have ever thought that somebody of that caliber in golfing was holding herself back, deliberately losing because she didn't want to be on the podium giving a speech? And and by the way, how good, how ridiculously good do you have to be to get second place on purpose? Yeah, exactly. Like, that's what I was thinking. I was like, seems like it would be harder. Like, yeah. <laughs> like that's how good you are. Oh, I'm going to miss this just barely on purpose. Really? Right. Holy right. moly. That really floored me. So I know that's not your point, but it just, it blew me away. Well, it is. She is good. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why she's the best female golfer of all time. I shouldn't even say female golf. She's one of the best golfers. One of the best golfers. Period. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Ever. For sure. She's amazing. So public speaking in particular is a big fear. How have you helped yourself or your teams if they're afraid of it? And have you ever been afraid of it? Or do you know anyone that's afraid of it? I mean, practice, 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 right? Some of us are, are more natural at it than others. Some of us just love to talk. That's me. But looking at my children, they don't all have that gift of gab. So we encourage them. They, they do things at school that are optional. Then we say, nope, it's not optional for you. You need to get up there and do it because there's just no other way to get comfortable with it. Yeah, that practice and, and forcing people to do it, I mm-hmm. think that is really very important. Tammy, what do you think? Well, I agree. I think when you avoid something because you have fear of it, you add power to the fear. So avoidance seems like the thing to do at the moment to avoid the discomfort but it actually is adding power to the fear. So, and of course, you know, counselors and people who deal with people with all kinds of fears know this, but as you can begin to familiarize and face that fear, step into situations where you're going to have to force yourself to face it, 
you begin to realize that fear doesn't have as much power. It's interesting how the fear of public speaking is is so high. I don't know what the statistic is, but you know, second only to the fear of death, I think. Something you can do if there's somebody on your team that is struggling with it is set them up for success, put them in a situation where they really are the subject matter expert and remind them. There's nobody in the audience that knows more about this topic than you do. Mm, nobody. Any job. We all have something in that, that we know the best. So get them in that situation because that, that helps so much. It really does. For me, public speaking is one of the must-have skills for leadership. You don't have to relish it. You don't have to become a member of the National Speakers Association or the Speakers Roundtable, but you must not be afraid. And it makes you distinct. It makes you unique if you're not afraid. But the larger question, Tammy was alluding to it earlier, is fear itself. So we all fear something. We all need to overcome some kind of obstacle in our path to be successful. I find it very interesting, the technique that was used for her. She was tricked and forced to speak. They recognized what she was doing. Now, how good of a parent yeah. you have mm-hmm. to be very much. to see that she's so good that she's losing by one right. stroke. And you realize that so that she was surprised and forced to speak and then learned it wasn't as bad as she thought. What ways, not just a public speaking, but what ways can you help people overcome their fears, What uncover what those are in a safe way and help them overcome that? Well, here's here's a it's not a work example, but it is the same kind of situation. Our our daughter went through a period where she was afraid of elevators. Didn't want to ever get in an elevator. And this is pre-COVID. This is pre-COVID. <laughs> pre-COVID. So this was, you know, probably 8th 8th ninth grade. And we went to a basketball camp uh, in North Carolina, UNC. And as we were going into the dormitory, we knew that the kids would be staying in the dormitory. Some of the parents were there too. You know, there were nine floors. And the ninth floor was where her dormitory was. So there was no option to walk and, you know, carry a bunch of stuff up and down the stairs. And she was just paralyzed for a minute. And I said, you're just going to have to get in there. You're just going to have to get in there. I'm going to get in there too. It's going to be fine. Not only did she have to do it for that trip, but every single time there was a game or a class or a session. I mean, it was up and down, up and down, up and down multiple times during that four or five day period. And She wasn't afraid of elevators anymore. She doesn't love it. She didn't love it for a while, but not an issue any longer. But it was done. It was done. That's good. Just force yourself to get through it. Yeah, which, which, I mean, the the forcing part, it can sound so insensitive. You know, just get in there and do it, right? You just just have to get over it. But you really do. Like, you've got – it's back to that practice thing, right? She practiced riding elevators almost. That's the only – you can't read about it. You can't – you know, I don't know if people meditate on it. I don't know what they do, right? But the experience is really the only way. And finding out that it's okay. Like, you didn't die in the elevator. You didn't embarrass yourself public speaking. It's going to be okay. Repeat, repeat, repeat. And that's what Annika learned, I think, just being forced to do that. Now, Tammy's daughter's only fear is what will mom raise on the Aim Higher podcast? Yes, indeed. <laughs> About me. So that's our new fear. So I have seen... I've witnessed, thinking particularly about a niece and a nephew who were in Florida. My sister was afraid of them drowning in pools because there's so much water in the area that she was living and forcing them to learn how to swim. They were babies and literally just throwing them in the water, which I don't recommend unless you're a real expert. And these people were, but it was something to behold and uh, not something I wanted to see, but 
it was the same concept of just, and then before you know it, they love the water. And how often that is as adults, we just, we let these fears cement and we don't let mm. ourselves just get in and try it. And we think we have to be an expert. We worry about what do we look like and will I look stupid? Will I, people make fun of me and will I say the right thing? And yet the action itself is what makes the difference on fear. But I, I found her story so compelling because playing at that level, you wouldn't think anything would hold you back. And yet that was holding her back. So specifically on public speaking, which I find amazing, but it could have been anything else. And then I think about this. How many others are out there who don't have parents that were that wise to see what was going on, who aren't seeing what it is holding them back, and they have let themselves be number two or not place at all or not participate at all because of something that is holding them back. And so how you can look at your own fear, see what it is, get the help that you need to overcome it so that you can achieve the greatest possible success you can in your life is a very important part of success. And if you don't, take a deep look, an introspective look at yourself and kind of think about that and think about developing a plan for doing that, you will be a more average, mediocre person instead of one that is incredibly successful. So if you want to aim higher, you need to take a look at these things and change your life so that you can propel yourself to greater and greater destinies for yourself. And that is how you aim higher. Thanks for listening to Aim Higher with Skip Pritchard. Check out skippritchard.com for more episodes, interviews, book reviews, and leadership insights. And if you like what you hear, please rate us in iTunes. Until next time, remember, don't settle for the mediocre. Always aim higher.